Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. During Super Bowl season, even non-fans are paying attention to the sport. But a lot of the recent football drama is happening off the field. Coach Brian Flores is suing the league over what he says are discriminatory practices that have left him without a job. Really, the problem is more of a ground soldier sort of thing. In a league that is 70% black in terms of players, 75% of the coaches are white. And so the coaching pipeline is an issue long before owners ever get into the mix. Like, this gets to the heart of people who get hired for those low-level jobs that none of the fans think about. Joel Anderson on black coaches fighting for respect in the NFL. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Super Bowl Sunday is upon us, and the Cincinnati Bengals are facing off against the Los Angeles Rams for the NFL Championship and Lombardi Trophy. But there's another epic NFL battle that's just getting started. Former Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores is suing the league, claiming racial discrimination. He was fired despite a winning record and said that teams treated his interviews for new coaching jobs like a joke. So why can't a league where the vast majority of the players are black make strides in leveling the playing field for black coaches? Joining us to talk about it is Joel Anderson. He's a co-host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, and hosted the most recent season of Slow Burn on the L.A. Riots. Joel Anderson joins us now. Welcome to Word. Hey, thanks, Chase, for having me. Let's talk about Brian Flores. He's the former coach of the Miami Dolphins. He got fired at the end of this season. He's suing the league for racial discrimination. Tell me a little bit about him. And the reason I'm asking this is because context matters, right? When Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, he had his complaints against the league for saying, hey, they're blackballing me over Black Lives Matter. A lot of people were able to argue in good and bad faith. Well, he wasn't that good. The 49ers hadn't been winning. He can't get a job because he's not that good a quarterback anymore. But that wasn't the case with Brian Flores, right? It, it, by all accounts, it appears that he was a pretty damn good coach. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, after three seasons, he was a game under 500. That was much better than people anticipated when he went to the Dolphins, who were on a downslide then. They were trying to not win so many games so that they could get the first pick in the draft. So you asked what Brian Flores' reputation was. It barely matters because he had worked under Bill Belichick for almost you know, going on 15 years or so, or close to about that. And if you know anything about the NFL, you know one of the fastest, most assured ways to become an NFL head coach is to spend some time standing next to Bill Belichick. Brian Flores did that for a decade. He came in with a reputation for integrity, respect, a guy that the players could look up to, somebody who himself was a standout football player in college. So he fit the mold of what you would think an NFL head coach would be. And when he actually got the opportunity, it turned out he was pretty good at it, better than people had any right to believe in the first place. Part of Brian Flores' lawsuit is he has these screenshots of a text message from Bill Belichick. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about these text messages 
from Belichick and how that became a part of this lawsuit. Nobody wants to feel sorry for Bill Belichick, but I had a moment of empathy for a nearly 70-year-old man trying to text people, right? And so basically what happened is that Bill Belichick had two assistants at some point in his career over the past decade. One of them was Brian Flores. One of them was Brian Dayball, who at that point was the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills. One day, Brian Flores gets a text message from Bill Belichick saying, hey, heard you got the job if you want it. Hope it works out. Brian Flores responds, hey, I've got an interview in New York in a few days. Do you know something that I don't? And at that moment, that's where the empathy comes in for Bill Belichick because you can just imagine him being like, Oh, hell. I've texted the wrong person. And Bill Belichick, to his credit, says, you know what? I screwed this thing up. This was meant for Brian Dayball. And then Brian Flores sits there and it's like, it's so funny how that text thread ends because he says, thanks, Bill. And I think that the context for that, which is important, is Belichick you know, who clearly now probably has to put white Brian and black Brian in his phone so he doesn't make this mistake <laughs> anymore. Belichick was congratulating Brian Dable for a job and Brian Flores hadn't even gone in and interviewed yet. So it, it, what it exposes is the fact that, you know, these interviews with African-American candidates are a sham. If they've already given this job to another dude before I've even showed up, then what's the point of me even coming in for the interview? Yeah, it's a farce. I mean, to go up there and to have your hopes up and to think Brian Flores had all the reason in the world to think that he would have gotten another job this hiring cycle, like as well as he had done in Miami with his reputation. The only reason that the Dolphins fired him is that he didn't necessarily get along with the general manager there and he didn't necessarily agree with the course of action. He didn't believe in the quarterback that they had drafted, but he was supposed to be next up. And yeah, he gets this text message and he's like, oh, I thought I had a real shot at this job in my hometown. Brian Flores is from New York. He's thinking, I'm going to get a chance to coach the hometown team, the Giants. And then you find out, oh, actually, they're doing this just to satisfy the requirements of the Rooney rule. So I want to talk a little bit about Brian Flores's lawsuit, at least just one part of it. Now, it's interesting, you know, obviously the text message from Bill Belichick you know, just showed up. And then within four or five days, Flores has this huge lawsuit, 40 something page lawsuit against the NFL. So like, I don't think he put that lawsuit together just because he got the letter from Bill. I think he had that in the hopper. Like, I think he was, that he was with the clickety clack. He was about to, he was going to sue the moment he didn't get a job. Right. The weekend after he probably got fired from the Dolphins, because that didn't even make any sense in the first place. And there was some thought that he was going to come back. So they probably like, hey, you know what, man? They probably tripping around here. Let's just get ready just in case the NFL is as bad as I think they are. In the court of public opinion and actual courts, if we look at what's happened since Colin Kaepernick, right? Colin Kaepernick has been out of the league now five years, since 2017. In the years since Kaepernick has basically been blackballed. You've had the number of African or non-white coaches, African-American coaches go from eight to now maybe three, depending on how you count it, right? From 2017 to now. You've had information come out about the NFL using something called race norming, where they basically said, we don't have to pay black players as much in a settlement over concussion issues because African-American intelligence isn't as high. And then you had John Gruden get exposed as being one of the most powerful, both media and sports and management people in the NFL, exchanging racist emails about players over who knows how long. Does this make Brian Flores' case stronger 
given what we've seen happen in the NFL for the last couple of years, or does it still not matter? It's just going to depend on which court he ends up in. Well, I'm going to pretend that I'm a legal analyst here. What I will say is that I think that the case that the NFL is racist is a pretty solid one or that it's dealing with issues with institutional racism, like pretty much any institution in this country that at the top, there's 32 owners who are in charge of the league, not Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell, the commissioner, essentially serves at the pleasure of these owners. Of those 32 owners, only two are not white and they're not black. Okay. You've got that problem. And so any institution that's built that way, of course, is going to have problems with racism and you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So, yes, the NFL has that problem. The issue is, will Brian Flores be able to prove that in court? That seems much more difficult. First of all, we know in this country, making a legal case that you've been discriminated against approving racism is almost a fool's errand. Like, it's very, very difficult. The NFL has enough evidence, even just in the last few days. The most recent head coach that was hired in the NFL was a black man, Lovey Smith, a former NFL coach. So I'm not on a jury, I'm not a judge, but I would have to think that the NFL has enough evidence to make it seem as if, you know what, this is just a blind Flores issue and not a larger NFL issue. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the black coaches in the NFL. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about black coaches in the NFL with Joel Anderson, co-host of Slate's Hang Up and Listen sports podcast. So 20 years ago, the NFL implemented the Rooney Rule. For the audience that doesn't really know what that is, like what is the Rooney Rule and how has that sort of played out for black coaches over the last 20 years? Well, you know, it's funny we were talking about lawsuits in the previous segment. Well, the Rooney rule is the result of Johnny Cochran and another attorney threatening to sue the NFL over the exact same problem that we're discussing today, the failure to hire black coaches. And as part of that rule, it was whenever you have an open coaching search in the NFL, you have to interview at least one black person. Right. And that has been the rule. And. It has worked in some ways and not worked in a lot of ways. And as you can tell that it has not worked because we're right back at the same point. But at a minimum, it allowed some black assistants and coordinators throughout the league to get an opportunity to interview for jobs that they never would have had otherwise, right? So, and I don't remember, Jason, do you remember Sherm Lewis? Yes, I remember Sherm Lewis, yeah. Sherm Lewis is the guy, I think, that had a lot to do with this. In the 80s and 90s, he came up under Bill Walsh, who, before Bill Belichick, was considered the greatest coach in NFL history. He'd worked there for nine seasons. He'd been the offensive coordinator for the Packers when they had Brett Favre. He was... The next man up for as long as I can remember as a young football fan, this black offensive coordinator who was part of these successful coaching trees, had a lot of success on his own. And what happened was that over the years, people under him got elevated to head coaching jobs while he didn't. Two of those guys, John Gruden 
Andy Reid, and also Steve Mariucci and Marty Morningway. Like, those are guys that all worked under him and got to be head coaches before he did. Sherm Lewis never got a chance to become a head coach. He's 79 years old. He retired about a decade ago. He never got a chance. So I think of him in a lot of ways as the forefather of this Rooney Rule, the first guy who we knew should have been a head coach and never got the opportunity. And, like, the Rooney Rule was supposed to rectify that so that we would never have another Sherm Lewis. So... In the last couple of days after Brian Flores launched his lawsuit and Flores dropped his lawsuit like a brand new mixtape on the first day of Black History Month, 2022. (laughs) And suddenly after the man shakes the table, you've now, oh, surprise, surprise, you've had two non-white coaches get hired. The first is a guy named Mike McDaniel, who identifies as multiracial, and he's been hired by the Miami Dolphins. And then from your home state of Texas... Uh, the Houston Texans have hired Lovey Smith. What do you think about the fact that these two non-white coaches have been hired in the two weeks after Flores launches his suit? And quite frankly, I know this is a sticky subject, but is it really addressing the black coaching issue when, one, you've got Lovey Smith, who quite frankly has been overlooked for jobs for way too long. The guy took a team to the Super Bowl. And two, Mike McDaniel doesn't necessarily identify as African-American. He has publicly said he identifies as multiracial. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and Howard Bryant uh, said this perfectly a few days ago. If you don't think you count, you don't count, right? So if he doesn't think that he's black and he doesn't explicitly identify as black, then I don't think that the NFL should be able to count those towards their numbers, right? And I've heard that the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which is uh, organization that was founded to develop a pipeline of coaches for the NFL and other leagues, Mike McDaniel wasn't in that pipeline. So it's kind of hard to say that, like, he's coming from the black coaching tradition, right? He says that his grandmother on his dad's side is black and his dad is black, which I assume means that his dad is biracial, right? Um, and, and may have identified as black. At this point, you're almost weaponizing a one-drop rule at this point to try to include him in the population of, of black coaches. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's being used against him. And I mean, the thing is, is that, It's even just a one of one, right? Because Brian Flores was at the Dolphins. They hired another non-white coach to replace him when they were in a pinch and they're the subject of a lawsuit, right? So, oh, that's very convenient. And then you go to the Houston Texans, which is a mess in and of itself. A year before, they had a black head coach, a 65-year-old longtime assistant, Dave Culley, who was never on anybody's list to ever become a head coach. But, you know, miraculously in a year when the Texans look to be going through a rebuilding season, they don't have their star quarterback because he's in legal peril and they bring in a black man to hold it together. And it was always sort of assumed that he's just a placeholder. He's not the guy that's going to be there when they turn things around. Well, of course, that's exactly what happened. They didn't do that. They fired him a year later, even though they overperformed and played pretty well under the circumstances. And so Brian Flores interviewed for that job. That was an opening right there. Of the candidates that were there, one of them was a former NFL quarterback named Josh McCown, a good dude, a white guy, but he has no coaching experience whatsoever in the NFL. He was one of the finalists, and it was him, Brian Flores, at that point. Well, Josh McCown didn't want the job. He kind of saw the writing on the wall. So, oh, perfect job for hire Brian Flores, the guy who has this great reputation, and he's part of the Patriots family, and the Houston Texans have a bunch of former Patriots in their front office. Ha. 
then then they you know zig where they should have zagged and bring in Lovey Smith, who as you mentioned has been a successful head coach in the NFL, but that's not really in keeping with the spirit of the rules. Lovey Smith is sixty three years old. A lot of his best head coaching days are behind him, and it's great that he's getting this opportunity. But that's not in keeping with the spirit of the Rooney Rule. We know who the best finalist was for that job, and it was Brian Flores, and now he doesn't have that job. I want to ask this objectively. What kind of power do players have when it comes to these coach hiring situations? By comparison, the NBA, where players are much more empowered, right? Because one guy can make a complete difference in a team. You've had NBA players. You've had LeBron James come out and say, I want a black coach. You've had Chris Paul come out and and advocate for African-American coaches. Do the players really have any power in the coach hiring decision makings that happen at the NFL can the players really do anything about this, or is it really just a decision of ownership? I mean, collectively, they have power, right? And they bargain as a collective unit, so they have power in that way. But individually, I would say that they don't, because very few NFL players ever can accumulate enough influence to have that that sort of uh, sway in a coaching hire. So, right, so Peyton Manning, you know, if when the Colts are trying to hire somebody— Back in the day, they would go to Peyton Manning. If Tom Brady is trying to go somewhere, they're making some coaching decisions around him, he gets included in that. But that's for, like, top-line quarterbacks in the NFL. That's not something that very many black players individually have within their capacity. So, I mean, yes, they have power. If they all said, you know what, we're going to boycott. We're going to sit out and not play the Super Bowl and not play a miss a regular season weeks, maybe they would have some sway then. But as the system is currently constituted, they really don't because not very many players of any color ever accumulate that much influence or power we're going to take a short break when we come back more on black coaches and the nfl with joel anderson this is a word with jason johnson stay tuned You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about black coaches in the NFL with Joel Anderson, co-host of Slate's Hang Up and Listen Sports podcast. So in addition to the racial discrimination charges, Brian Flores alleges in his suit that the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, offered to pay him $100,000 for every game that he lost so that the Dolphins could tank and get a higher draft pick. How has this accusation, which is separate from racial discrimination, been playing out in NFL circles? I mean, if you've got owners paying to tank, isn't that a bigger or even deeper problem than just racial discrimination alone? Well, actually, if anything gets the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, in trouble, it's probably not going to be firing Brian Flores. It'll probably be that accusation there. And if Brian Flores can corroborate any other stories along those lines, then they will have a real problem because you can't have owners inducing people to lose in a time of the increasing influence of sports gambling in this country. Like, that is a real problem. That speaks to the integrity of the games. People show up, spend millions of dollars every week to watch these games. And if there's some hint that some teams are really not giving it their all on a play-to-play basis or they're organizing their franchise in such a way that they're not putting in a full effort, then yeah, that'll be the real problem. It won't be the black coaching thing. It will be that, oh, there's a chance that these NFL games, some of them are not above board because these owners are financially inducing people to lose games, which is about as bad as it can get in terms of like it's speaking to the integrity of the game. Yeah, that's a Donahue situation, which they had in basketball 15, 16 years ago. And what strikes me about it, Joel, is if this is proven to be true, 
it's not just the integrity of the game. That means every single Miami Dolphins season ticket holder can sue Stephen Ross and sue the league because basically they were robbed, right? They were defrauded. We were, yeah, we were defrauded. And it would put Brian Flores in a tough situation because it's like, well, if I take this money, then I'm part of the conspiracy. And also, if I lose, I don't have no guarantee that you're not going to fire me anyway. Uh, which which was a legitimate concern yet. You have a worse record, right? Like like you 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 choose to lose those games, you lose. You know that you're probably not going to get the benefit of doubt on the other end. And then it speaks to the, your integrity as a coach. If they know that you're taking it, if you're if you're playing a role in something like that, it's like, oh, well, that guy can be swayed for hundred and a hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money to you and me. But for somebody like Brian Flores, who's work, talking in the millions, that's not quite enough to throw away your whole career. Some people are arguing that the solution to discrimination and hiring in the NFL starts at the top with ownership, right? You know, you don't have any African-American owners in the league at all. And, you know, as of right now, the Denver Broncos are for sale and you have two prominent African-American, you know, multimillionaire billionaires who are applying for those who who are saying that they're going to go for those jobs. You've got media mogul Byron Allen. You have Robert Smith. Do you think that black ownership of NFL teams is the solution to some of these racial problems, or is it really just more window dressing because the vast majority of the league is still going to stay in the hands of, of wealthy white guys who are basically mini Trumps. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that it would change that one team. Right. And you can see that often when like, for instance, a black head coach like Tony Dungy, when they get an opportunity, they develop a lot of opportunities for black coaches beneath them. Right. Um, they have that opportunity. So you could see that working its way up in a black owner coming and say, oh, you know what? Let's have a black uh, team president here. Let's have somebody over marketing. Like maybe that would happen with that specific team. But overall, it's not going to happen. And really, the problem is more of a ground soldier sort of thing. In a league that is 70 percent black in terms of players, 75 percent of the coaches are white. And so the coaching pipeline is an issue long before owners ever get into the mix. Like this gets to the heart of people who get hired for those low level jobs and none of the fans think about quality control coaches at the college level you know getting an opportunity to work as a grad assistant for somebody because you know you know their dad or whatever right like those are the pipelines to the league and that's how you build up the resume to become a head coach the owners don't play a role in that and so it would be great to have a black owner but if we think that jay-z robert smith Byron Allen, which is funny to me on a number of levels, get to be the black owner, that that's going to solve the problems for the other 31 teams. I think you're sort of fooling yourself. I want to close with this because I think this is important. This Sunday is the big game. It's the Super Bowl. It is probably, this was on no one's bingo card. It's the Los Angeles Rams with Pat Statford, never a fan. <laughs> I see. Pat Stafford. Versus the Cincinnati Bengals. I, I get a lot of heck for that when I'm on uh, Brother from Another with, with Michael Smith and Holly. They do this thing at the end of the year where they do a super cut of all the times I've criticized the Rams just to rub it in my face. As somebody who analyzes sports, talks about sports, sports journalists, who you got this Sunday and why? Pretty much it's pretty clear to me that the Rams are the better team, right? That they've got the most talent, top-line talent. And the things that Cincinnati Bengals are bad at are things that the Rams are actually really good at. So all year long, people said the Bengals have a terrible offensive line. They've just been trying to overcome this offensive line. Like, they've got a great quarterback, second-year quarterback in Joe Burrow, a great wide receiver in uh, Jamar Chase, who may already be the best receiver in the league, but they don't have enough time to cook up because that offensive line is so bad and in fact in their first playoff game they got sacked nine times and still managed to beat the Tennessee Titans right so they've been able to overcome these problems but against the Rams that's probably going to be a tougher task because Aaron Donald 
Von Miller. The LA Rams have like a tremendous pass rush, a really good defense, and they've got one of the best defensive backs in the league who can sort of neutralize Jamar Chase. Or, you know, maybe they have him on the Rams' second best, you know, they have him on the Bengals' second best receiver, and then they double-team Jamar Chase. So, at any rate, everything that the Bengals do well, the Rams have a counter for. So I think it'd be really hard for the Bengals. So I'm sorry that, you know, Pat Stafford might be holding up that Lombardi trophy, but, you know, Anything is possible, but the Bengals have really been, you know, kind of <laughs> getting in by the skin of their teeth all season. And I kind of think that ride's going to come to an end on Sunday. Joel Anderson is the co-host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, and host of the most recent season of Slow Burn, the L.A. Riots. Thank you so much, man. It's always a pleasure to talk. Oh, uh, My pleasure, brother. Thanks for having me on. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.